The Remedial Herstory Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the primary and secondary history curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. You can check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Our project is funded through grants and by patrons, potentially like you. Thank you to our patrons, Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Kent, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, Katia, Michelle, Jessica, Laura, and Jackie. If you would like to join these wonderful people and become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial Herstory Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? In today's episode, we are going to be talking about the misdiagnosis of women throughout history. Mm-hmm. Let's get into this. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we are going to ask the question, how have unwell women been treated in healthcare? And we have a very special guest, Dr. Eleanor Cleghorn, who recently wrote a book called Unwell Women, came out in June of 2021, and I am so excited to have her <laughs> on the podcast. I know. You sent me this book, I feel like, forever ago, and it's such a meaningful topic of like advocating for women in their own healthcare rights. So I'm so curious to your conversation you had with her. Yeah. She's a rock star. I, you know, I've been exposed to this this topic um, in, in a variety of ways. What I really like about her book is how much she emphasizes these biases that permeate not just like old medical beliefs, but present medical mm-hmm. beliefs that come from as far back as, you know, the Greeks. And I've recently learned about how male bodies tend to be used as control groups in right. medical studies. So if you put everything against a male body and then try to diagnose a woman, yeah, very different. There's, a, there's another um, scientist and advocate in the field who is talking a lot about how like women aren't just small men. You can't just take right. like the medicine that you have... Um, you know, prescribed for a man and then just like reduce the dose because she's two yeah. inches shorter. And then children aren't just smaller, smaller men. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's lots of different things going on there. I also, you know, that one of the, one of the problems in medicine is just how many times men were and their beliefs about women, um, were the ones diagnosing and treating women. And one of the things that I found really interesting in in thinking about that, like, of course, I want experts treating me. That makes sense to me. And whether they're male or female shouldn't matter at all. But women, in theory, don't have as much prejudice against their own body type, you know, and like might be more respectful of like the experience of being female and open to the possibilities you know that like maybe it's not just your hormones (laughs) you know like (laughs) woo throwing that out there um and 
So, you know, I, I was realizing both of my doctors are female, the, like the two I go to the most. The Me too. And my primary care. Actually, I grew up with mostly female doctors, which was kind of awesome. Yeah. And I, I like that. And I read a study recently that said that female doctors over the course of their lifetime make $2 million less than their male Ew. peers. Yeah. Um, and the reason, you know, obviously there, there could be a degree of sexism that's a factor there, but, um, and, and maybe, you know, you know, in HR, like not negotiating like hard enough or something like it is and isn't medical field is very similar to education though. Um, because most healthcare systems are nonprofit, they have to publish uh, mm. their salaries. And so there's a lot of less inequities there are there than there used to be. Mm. And so I think that curve might swing the other direction because, mm there is fair and equitable practices happening at least in my lifetime. So that's awesome. Hopefully that will change that <laughs> pendulum swing, but there is still private healthcare systems that can pay whatever they'd like to, to whoever they like to. Yeah. Um, but what they were saying is the primary cause is actually, um, female doctors spend more time with their patients on average. That makes sense. So billable hours. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, <clears throat> but I want that. Like I want a doctor who wants to like, really like puzzle through a problem with me yeah and I'm sure lots of people listening have gotten the run around like I had seasonal allergies and I probably went to like I don't know six different quote-unquote experts mm. checked out my ear checked out my like jaw checked out all these things and I finally my primary care was like I think you just have allergies and like <laughs> that's what's bothering your ear you know and get some flonase and move on yeah like hey, we're done here <laughs> next um and I'm sure people listening are like yeah that happened to me with whatever it was and how nice would it have been if somebody just sat there and like puzzled through all the different pieces that were going on yeah you know? I have a really nice relationship with my primary care now and the fact that like I'll just go in there and be like this is what I need she's like sounds good because <laughs> she's like so she Brooke's she's very aware of her own body she, <laughs> just give her whatever she's asking for or she's enabling <laughs> and like, sometimes she'll challenge me on stuff that she thinks are, should be challenged but for the most part I'm pretty accurate I'm like well this is how I got to this point and she was like yeah sounds right sounds right good job WebMD here you go WebMD. Oh God, my doctor makes fun of me anytime I'm coming. I'm like, so I read something, and she goes, Oh God. <laughs> of course, it's usually some like scholarly study. That yeah, you was, go like, deep. I go to WebMD. But it was like, but it was like a population. You know, it was like a small sample size. And she's like, Yeah, but there's like twelve other studies that like negate, negate the, that. Yeah, one. <laughs> that's pretty funny. So anyway, I am so excited. We have Eleanor Cleghorn here with us. And why don't we let her introduce herself? Of course. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Eleanor Cleghorn and I'm a feminist cultural historian. I have a PhD in humanities and cultural studies. And my first book, which is called Unwell Women, Myth and Misdiagnosis in a Man-Made World, was published in June 2021 with Dutton Books in the US and with W&N Books in the UK. And I live just on the edge of a forest in the south of England in a county called Sussex. I can't believe this is your first book because it's so powerful. <laughs> what is book number two gonna look like? Ooh. <laughs> well, I'm kind of keeping it under wraps at the moment, but there is something that is brewing. So 
watch this space <laughs> sorry to be evasive about it you know you know we, yes. I think it's authors or when we do any project we can sometimes be a bit sort of <gasps> protective of it and then yeah before it sort of gets announced in the world but yeah there is something oh in the that's so exciting <laughs> in a similar field in a similar in a really similar field okay oh well, medical history is such a powerful way that you can bring women's history into a classroom because uh, it's well documented and um, it's just there's, you know, women ha have always been treated by doctors and people have loved women for all of time and wanted them to be well. Um, and I really loved how in the book you talked about in order to diagnose illness, you really need to understand sort of like what the basis for well is. And if you're only using men as your, your ballpark for that, it, it gets really problematic. And I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about like how far back these problems of using maleness as sort of the center of health and, um, you know, the misdiagnosing women uh, goes back. So I begin my book in ancient Greece because this is really the point at which we begin the history of Western medical thinking, Western medical practice. So this is the model of scientific evidence-based medicine that we mostly participate in today. So that's why the book begins there. But ancient Greece is also a really particular time in which many of these ideas about women's bodies being perhaps inferior to male bodies, being less than male bodies, being more susceptible to illness, to pathologies than male bodies. This point in our history is really when these ideas took form and were laid down. They were really baked in to foundational medical knowledge. So I begin with Hippocrates, who was a physician in ancient Greece, and Hippocrates was the physician from whom we derive the Hippocratic Oath, which is the oath that healthcare professionals swear, which is an ethical oath, and it essentially states that it's the doctor's responsibility to first do no harm. So this was Hippocrates' position. He was very interested in bodies, in illness and disease, and how to heal them and in how to treat people's bodies as bodies rather than as, you know, entities that are affected all the time by religion and gods and myths. So he really began the treatment of diseases and illnesses by looking at symptoms, by carefully monitoring what people's bodies were doing. So, so far so good, right? But unfortunately, ancient Greece was a very patriarchal society in which women were largely principally destined to reproduce and raise children. And that really was women's primary purpose in ancient Greek society. The ancient Greeks really didn't think about women's bodies as useful for anything else beyond reproduction. So the ancient Greece uh, philosophers and physicians, including the Hippocratic physicians, followed the belief that women were a biologically or physically inferior version of the human ideal, which to them was a male body. And, you know, this is problematic, of course, on many levels. Um, it all, from the beginning, it sets up women's bodies as being very susceptible to all sorts of disorders and illnesses and diseases. 
whereas men's bodies were perceived to be stronger and naturally healthier and more able to stave off you know diseases of the mind and body and to participate in being active and things like that whereas because women were expected to be sedentary to be in the home to be raising children that was really how the earliest knowledge about their health was formed and beginning there is important because the ancient Greek knowledge didn't die with you know the fall of Rome for example the these foundational treaties that survived the fall of Rome so things like the writings of the Hippocratic physicians they were then taken into the new centuries when Christian theology became the dominant belief system in, in Europe and in the western world and so this knowledge has really stayed with medical history throughout its very long centuries and it's never really disappeared. So some of the ideas of ancient Greece seem alarming, crazy, fanciful, and even hilarious to our modern ears. You know, the ancient Greeks believed that women's wombs, their uteruses would wander around their bodies if they were not healthy because they were carrying or, or conceiving a child. And this seems nuts to believe that the womb is this wandering animal that can creep all around your body. But the Greeks, to, to the Greeks who didn't practice dissection, didn't have ultrasounds, didn't have x-rays, couldn't take blood tests, they made this speculative theory. And although this was disproved when we start having anatomy, the understanding of what's going on underneath human beings' skin, this mythology that women were really ruled by their reproductive systems really persisted, even as new scientific understanding and methodology came into the mix. So that's why the book begins there. It's really so it can set up the thinking that women are physiologically inferior to men, that women are primarily seen as being reproductive, and also that women are seen as these almost pathological creatures that are always susceptible to, in some way, having disordered or unruly or untamable bodies. Hey, Kelsey, I don't think our listeners know about the new upcoming project that we're working on. Which one? The video series. Oh, the video series. That's awesome. <laughs> I know. So I thought we could tell them a little bit about what the project is, how it's funded, and what the purpose is. Well, we are producing a video series, 25 episodes on U.S. history, 25 episodes on world history. And the point of these is to provide teachers who don't know women's history with like a 10-minute video that they could play for their class. So say you're teaching a lesson on the American Revolution. Here's 10 minutes about women in that time period. Amazing. And it could be a foundation that you can springboard from and do something really cool on those women. And these videos are, yes, you, but they are yeah. fully scripted. You can look at the scripts. They're nicely edited with some really great content. Yep. They're vetted by historians to PhDs at least um, in history so you know people smarter than me <laughs> <laughs> but they're going to be free and, and they're, they're on YouTube and they'll be on YouTube they also have a comedian from Hollywood yes. who is helping to make them funny so it's you know because I'm like kind of boring uh no very <laughs> funny <laughs> but that's awesome so they're really engaging and they're really cool content so more to come there so we yeah. have those coming out and those are funded through grants? Through grants, 
through our patrons. Okay. Um, so their, you know, contributions to us through Patreon are supporting that project. And then we also have a lot of people that have been donating through Instagram, Facebook. We have a Venmo account. You can find us there. That's awesome. Um, and they're making those contributions. So, yeah, it's an amazing thing. And if this is something that you're like, yes, that's what teachers need. Um, any every penny helps because it is a really expensive project. So. It, yeah, totally. And we had a match donor for a while there too, yeah. which is really cool. So definitely, if you're People interested see in those, that it's needed. yeah, feel free to donate. You can donate right on our website, Instagram, and Venmo. Yeah, which is awesome. Great work. I'm cool. excited to see the rest of those videos. Oh, Brooke, thanks for your support of the project. Awesome. I was looking up here, Agondis, is she, um, I read about her, I couldn't remember her name, um, but she's an early gynecologist in this period who treated women, right? But perhaps she's just a myth. Is that something you researched? Yeah, no, I didn't talk about her primarily because it's not clear whether she was definitely a real person or not. But there's a really strong myth of around this female figure who was a gynecologist and also, I mean, she's sometimes known as being a midwife, but I think she's more, she was more supposed to be a gynecologist or someone who was more expert in women's health. And I think there is an example of her, you know, pretending to be a man in order to access the elite spaces of practicing medicine and then revealing, you know, raising her skirts and revealing like actually she was a woman. I think it's a really important and powerful myth to have these. I mean, there were women practicing medicine in ancient Greece, of course. There were women working as midwives. There were women who were birth companions to their relatives or friends who were going through childbirth. There would have been, you know, women living in the, their houses who had rudimentary knowledge, all sorts of basic healing practices. But what's interesting is that the guys, the men like Hippocrates, they're the ones who were sanctioned to make knowledge, to make this kind of official knowledge, the kind that then gets passed down or passed up rather through the centuries and taken as law. Whereas, you know, the figures who haunt ancient Greek women's medicine, the women figures, they tend to be relegated to the realm of myth or legend or maybe they were real maybe they're apocryphal and you know I think there's so much more to be understood about the role of women in medicine in these early centuries I didn't omit this because I wanted to pretend that women had no hand in medicine but it was really important because I wanted to trace how these more sexist and misogynistic ideas about women's bodies and health were laid down so it's really telling a story of how these ideas began and why they were so, you know, why they had such sticking power. And it's a really important point to bring up because even though women were involved in creating knowledge and were very involved in caring for, for bodies and played a really important role in healthcare, they were also not sanctioned to produce knowledge. So this is another really important question when we think about teaching women's history is that who was it that was actually allowed to write books and have their knowledge kind of ordained as, as you know, in the form of a, a book or something that could be translated? You know, so much of women's history is missed simply because 
women didn't necessarily have access to the production of knowledge. Hmm. That's really powerful. It makes me realize just how much of my own experience as a mother was like talked taught to me by other mothers as it was happening, you know, not like there wasn't like a, I don't know, wasn't part of like a full training. Um, you know, and a lot of the books are sort of like from my experience, it's like, that's mm-hmm. not scholarly help. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, very yeah. much this sort of passed down shared knowledge that, that especially women gain from other women across our lives. And I think that rings true, definitely for me, I definitely had that too, you know, and I noticed in many of the books I was reading that were written by midwives, it was all very personal, very rooted in personal knowledge. And then you get all this, you know, information and and insight from other women that is under that realm of what you might call like official knowledge. It's not like you get pregnant and you're given, you know, the big book of pregnancy by a male doctor <laughs> it's just that's not you know so it is really interesting like how you know how do we keep hold of these unsanctioned forms of knowledge these these really important practices that kind of sat beneath the dominant materials I guess that we go back and look at when we try and construct histories mm-hmm. so you bring up in your book a lot of different examples of the ways that this has been problematic for real women throughout history. And would you mind sharing a couple examples with us um, from your book of how, you know, how, how women have been mistreated and misdiagnosed in time? Of course. So I think the first example I'd like to share is the example of women being persecuted for supposed crimes and acts of witchcraft. Mm -hmm. And in Europe, across Europe, between sort of 1500 and 1700, there was a trend, if you can call it that, for, for assuming that witchcraft was at work on earth and that Uh, consorting with the devil so people on earth you know making pacts with and consorting with the devil were responsible for bringing about all sorts of ills on earth from you know illness to plague to destroyed crops to you know natural disasters and this was a time of intense change political social and natural upheaval in the world and there were very few ways in which people could understand why these things might happen and unfortunately, the climate of, at the time of suspicion around what women were capable of, you know, what women's bodies were capable of, was very high. And the, although the witch trials are not necessarily a medical phenomenon, medical ideas about women's bodies definitely contributed in a really major way to this climate of persecution and suspicion. So for example, I I mentioned briefly the kind of wandering womb idea from ancient Greece. The ancient Greeks set up this idea that a woman was very ruled by her uterus because her uterus needed to be pregnant or conceiving in order to be healthy. So the Greeks endowed the uterus almost without appetites and impulses all of its own. And it was often characterized in, you know, poetry on the writings of Plato, for example, as being like an akin to an animal, you know, that hungered for what it wanted. So by the time Christian theology got hold of this kind of thinking, 
It was very easy to manipulate and exploit these ideas by saying, well, women are very susceptible to influence. They don't have any control over what their bodies want. They're very influenced. They're susceptible to temptation, which of course comes from the story of the fall of Eve. And so it made it very easy for, to justify the punishment of women for these ridiculous and completely outlandish crimes of witchcraft. And over the centuries, of course, witchcraft or witchcraft accusations became much less about, you know, a, the belief that women could actually consort with devils mm. and more about a way to socially control women who were not perceived to be obeying their social destiny or their social use. So it's no coincidence, for example, that, you know, of the about 80% of the people across Europe during that time, the 45,000 estimated people who were executed for crimes of witchcraft were thought to be women. And most of those women were thought to be 40 or older. So at that point in history, nearing the end of their lives. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, the crone, the older woman, the shrew, the woman who's maybe going through what we today understand to be symptoms of menopause, is easy to accuse because she's you lost in society's eyes her usefulness as a childbearer, which again links back to this idea that the most healthful, the most youth, useful women are the ones who are you know fertile and younger. And so I think this is this really struck me as just a way in which medicine had really had a hand in something that was very punishing and very persecuting. So that's in the Middle Ages. I think then as we move up through the centuries, as medical knowledge be begins to leave behind these more mythological punitive ideas and starts to really look inside the body and starts to have theories about, for example, the nervous system, the circulatory system, the organs. Although these ideas such as witchcraft are consigned to the past, Again, the notion that women's insides are unruly, untamable, um, sorry, are unruly, untamable, and are susceptible to damage and, and doing destructive things. It really sits because when we move into the 19th century, where many of the examples that really struck me happened, now, gynecology and obstetrics, especially the central disciplines related to women's health, are becoming professionalized by men. And many men who are doctors, trained physicians, are suddenly becoming very interested in the quote unquote scientific study of women's bodies and women's diseases. So on the one hand, this is good because it means that women's bodies are no longer being seen as these mystifying alien other you know deceitful secretive entities but they're beginning to be looked at and, and tended to but also it meant that women's bodies were effectively being used to further men's professional reputations and to further their sense of innovation so during this time we see some absolutely important and crucial advances for example in gynecological surgeries but we also see an awful lot of gynecological surgeries being performed for reasons that are completely outrageous. For example, there was a craze in the 1800s, in the later 1800s, for removing women's ovaries 
and this is a procedure called ovariotomy. Now, in some cases, ovariotomy was an important and life-saving surgery. You know, if a woman had a, a cancer, a tumor, or another dysfunction, it could be a life-saving procedure. But because women's reproductive systems were believed to be responsible for a lot of their behavioral issues, as it were, the justification for these kind of surgeries was frighteningly broad. And so in some cases, physicians in the US and in the UK were performing surgeries like ovariotomy because a woman might have what we now understand to be mental health issues, for example. So I think this really struck me as something that was very violent and very brutal being wrapped up in these ideas that, well, it's for women's own good. You know, there was a lot of this happening during the 19th century that, mm. that really struck me. And of course, doctors during this time were, were largely private. They were elite figures for the most part in society. So they were also making money from advocating for these difficult, dangerous, and often completely pointless surgical interventions. Mm. So I think that whole section, there are a couple of chapters in the book, I think three chapters in the book actually that, that go through the 19th century, just because it really was the epitome of, of that historical moment in which women were, really did suffer at the hands of the male medical establishment. Mm -hmm. And there are so many individual cases that I'd read over that time that were really difficult to write and you know, challenging to read about. But I felt like it was really important to bring some real case studies into the mix and to really look at why certain physicians believed that, that it was right to treat women in this way. Mm. I used to teach psychology and um, lobotomies and, and I used that as sort of a good example of um, not using the scientific method very well to justify it. And I was really surprised in your book to read that how many, the, I think it was something like 75% of the people who had lobotomies were women. And, you know, that's an extension of now women's, you know, behavior, whatever being extended to the brain as well and having that be brutalized. So um, it's just really, it's, I think like you said, your tone is, is sad and it's sad that um, so many women weren't respected almost as human, right? It's sort of like a subcategory of human. Um, Definitely. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, some, a couple of people have made comments, like readers have made comments about these episodes of the book and ask well why did women go through with this and and I think what's really important to remember is this was dominant medicine this was the dominant medical establishment advocating for this and it's always important to remember that especially during the 19th century that women the kind of women who were seen by these private doctors who advocated for this kind of surgical stuff were had no real legal personhood of their own you know, to be married in the Victorian era was to give up your rights to your own property, your own wealth, your, your, even to your custody of your children, and really to your own body too. And so I think it, you can't really underestimate the hold that 
the patriarchal condition of women's lives had over them and their choices. And plus women were very conditioned not to question the authority of male figures like doctors. You know, we, you might imagine that you would say, and I'm sure there were many women who ran away from doctor's surgeries, you know, refusing to unlace their corsets and like, no, I'm not going to go through with that. But there were many also who, who would have just accepted the doctor's rationale and the, indeed their husband or father's rationale that this was right for them. Hmm. So as we move forward into the 40, 1940s and 1950s, when the lobotomy craze really took hold in the US and the UK and in parts of Europe. So this similar kind of ideology is at work here. You know, the, the neurologists Freeman and Watts who really pioneered the lobotomy craze in the 40s and 50s, American neurologists, you know, they believed that they'd found an, a, a fail-safe method for curing mental illness. And they also believed at the time, it was a you know, primary belief that this kind of mental illness, the kind of mental illness that you know, affected how somebody could live their life or you know, go about their you know, everyday routines was most common in women. Mm -hmm. And it was most commonly linked back to a sense of domestic dissatisfaction. So I've read the case books or some of the case books of Freeman and Watts talking about women who are admitted to have lobotomies who'd had what, things that are, that are described as emotional distress. I mean, who knows what was really going on in their lives to make them emotionally distressed, right? Yeah. But the idea that you could remove part of the brain in order to make a woman placid and calm and docile again is really shocking. It's so harrowing to think about. And there was one particular case I read about where a, a woman who was described just as a housewife, an American woman, I think she was in her thirties. Uh, she had a prefrontal lobotomy with Freeman and after they did a follow-up and they contacted her husband and he said, oh, she's great now. She's full of, I don't give a damnedness. Now what's so shocking about this statement is that the prefrontal lobotomy actually affects the capacity to make meaning. So it affects some of that capacity to reflect meaningfully on one's own life. So if, so when he said she was full of don't give a damnness, she actually had lost her ability to give a damn about anything, which is, was really, really shocked me. Yeah. You know, the main complaint in that case was that she worried all the time. Well, I can imagine being, you know, a housewife in the 1940s was pretty stressful and worrying. Yeah. The burdens of economic insecurity, of the war, right, of, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. we're talking about an enormous amount of life pressure, but also enormous amount of psychological pressure on, on women, especially yeah. to conform to a certain ideal. And when any sense of resistance or struggle or sadness is at risk of being pathologized in that way, then that must have been incredibly hard. So so yeah yeah that's wild wow they have pbs has a really great documentary series and I, I learned from that that one of the kennedy's sisters was lobotomized um and they interviewed this man who had survived he had a lobotomy when he was like 
I don't want to say he was like 12, you know, like he was just a punk kid who didn't like his stepmom and um, he had a lobotomy and it was really cool to like watch him talk about it mm. and how it's impacted his life because, you know, I'd sort of pictured these people as just like lumps, but you can function without it. Yeah. And so it was really interesting. Um, I think people must have helped him connect meaning or make meaning. Um, yeah, for sure. But, I think, you know, I think what's so troubling about it is that, and it had a really high mortality rate too. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very risky surgery. But the almost kind of laissez-faire, like this will sort out all your problems. You'll be, you'll be great. You'll be able to enjoy life and, and you know, not reflect on anything that bothers you. That is what I found so kind of troubling. It takes away something that's essentially human. But you're right. I, I, I've seen that series too. It's brilliant. Mm. And to be able to speak about how his life was affected afterwards and how he has managed to live in mm-hmm. spite of what he went through is really extraordinary because you know I'm I'm guessing that a lot of the women who went through that would not have them received you know therapy afterwards or whatever aftercare they really needed to come to terms with life after that procedure right mm-hmm. yeah yeah it strikes me just how um you know, in Friedman's case, he really, and in, in other people's cases, they really think that they're helping and they really think that they're curing. And it's hard to fault them for that because like, had he actually found a cure for mental illness, that would have been awesome, you know? Um, but at the same time, it, it, I think what I got from your book is just how these underlying beliefs about women, women's pain, women's ability to, you know, what's appropriate, what's normal, what's healthy, um, was, was so misguided. And, um, I really liked sort of the emphasis on like asking, believing women almost, right? Like there's a trend of that right now, believe women in what they're, you know, what they're saying about their health. You know, if, if they're coming to you and they're saying, I'm in pain, believe that, believe that pain. And I'm, I'm grateful. I've seen a trend on social media of doctors reaching out to their patients saying, mm. you know, especially gynecologists, what can I do to yeah. make this space better for you? Um, and I think that's really exciting, a good trend. <laughs> given your a really good trend. And, you know, it's completely right to say that these, these people, for the most part, did believe that they would, this was the right thing to do. What's so kind of horrifying were all the belief systems and all the ideologies that enabled procedures like those gynecological surgeries and like lobotomy to, to just kind of go ahead unquestioned. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is the, where this sort of violence comes from, this sort of, all these awful beliefs that, you know, to be healthy, to be mentally well, to be physically well, as a woman, you have to conform to what society wants for you as a woman, you know, what society decides you should do with your body, with your life, with your mind. And medicine is one of the areas one of the systems of power really at work in the world in which we can see this happening right we can see this kind of social control being played out because yeah physicians did think they were doing they were doing no harm you know they really believed in that Mm. 
So at the, in the conclusion of your book, you talk about the way that this history became really real for you. Would you mind sharing that with our listeners? Of course. So I was diagnosed in 2010 with a chronic autoimmune disease called lupus. And I had, I received my diagnosis after a really complicated pregnancy. And I had actually been really unwell for about seven or eight years before that, but had always been met with the assumption that either I was exaggerating my pain or that I must be hormonal or that I was anxious or that I should lose some weight or change my lifestyle. But it was usually these kind of accusations that I was fussy or I was you know, emotional around these symptoms. No doctors ever referred me for any further diagnostic tests or ordered any complex blood work. It was always dismissed. So at that time, when I was in my 20s, I kind of internalized these ideas that the pain wasn't real and I must be making it up and I must be anxious. And I had a lot of mental health issues connected with that, with not really knowing how to relate to my body anymore and feeling like I couldn't trust it. So when I was finally diagnosed with a disease that was real, (laughs) that consultants told me was the very likely cause of all my symptoms and pain when I was in my 20s, I felt really vindicated that I had known what was going on and that I was right to pursue it and right to try and get answers for it. But while I was in my 20s, I don't think I had any idea that what was happening to me was systemic or anything to do with sexism or anything to do with my gender and it was only after my diagnosis when I started mining medical history to look at other to look at historical women who had this disease to try and figure out what this disease had been in its history that I began to realize okay there's a real trend here you know lupus is a disease that of which 90% of sufferers are women and people born female but nobody really understands why. It's incurable, but no one understands why. It, no one really knows where it comes from or how to properly diagnose it. So it's shrouded in all these mysteries, which I had this hunch were because it was predominant in women. And women have always been seen when they present with the symptoms of complex diseases, things like pain and fatigue, you know, rashes, fevers, things that multi-symptomatic and you know could be one thing could be another thing that throughout history they've been primarily seen as hysterical or emotional or anxious and I've I recognized it in the case histories of lupus you know lots of women being misdiagnosed with psychiatric disorders before a decent doctor finally got hold of their case and and figured out what was really happening so it was from there that the germ of the idea that became unwell women really you know began to ferment with my realization that medicine did have a historic gender problem Hmm. and it also fermented for me in sharing my experiences with other people I know knew women I knew women in my family friends colleagues and realizing that all of us had a story that was somehow related to either being dismissed or misdiagnosed or poorly cared for, and that all of these experiences somehow came back to our gender. So countless people said, oh yeah, you know, I had a, I don't know, multiple sclerosis, for example, but I was just told I was anxious and had, you know, was paying too much attention to my body, 
for example, turned out I actually had MS. Hmm. Um, you know, people being told they had sexual, they were just, you know, scared of sex or had sexual dysfunction when really they had underlying disease like endometriosis. You know, lots of these, it seemed like all this mythologizing about what it meant to be a woman, what it meant to exist in a woman's body was getting in the way of us being cared for as human beings. Mm. And that was where the idea grew from. Um, at the time when I began writing the book, there were lots of stories beginning to emerge in the mainstream press about medical gender disparities and about around things like the misdiagnosis of heart attacks in women, mm. around you know, appalling rates of maternal and infant mortality and morbidity, especially in women of color. All these issues were coming to the fore and I wanted to really address these issues, but it was important to me as a historian to go back to the beginning and fully trace where they'd come from mm -hmm. and explore just how baked in these old ideas were mm -hmm. and to try and put forward the question, you know, do these antiquated mythologies and sexist misbeliefs have any place in our contemporary health and medical landscape? My, my belief is that if one of the ways we can move forward to a more equitable health culture for everybody, women, men, everyone, is if we face up to our histories and realise that, you know, medicine has been an incredible science, especially in the last 100 years, has made exponential leaps forward in how it can save and heal the lives and bodies of, of people, of humans. But it also still carries this burden of its historical mythologizing. It carries the burden of old ideas about what women should do with their bodies and minds. And in some instances, these notions are even sort of embedded in the so-called objective knowledge about diseases, in the diagnostic criteria, in the earlier you know, foundational papers that might be read by specialists in certain fields. So it was really my attempt to just say, look, this is our history. This is where this all came from. And if we understand our history, then we can consign that history to the past, not forget it, mm -hmm. but move away from it, learn from it and move away from it. That's really powerful. I, I love that idea. And, it, you know, it just, it strikes me just how many ways that that is, is impacted. I saw someone on social media saying um, that they asked to have their, their tubes tied or something. And yeah. the doctor said, but what, you know, you're young. What if you decide you want to have a baby later? And her comment really hit home with me. It was something like my body is already being preserved for some man I haven't even met, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. and I saw that one too. And we had a another furore I mean this this advice rears its ugly head from time to time but there was a furore a few months ago because the World Health Organization reiterated this advice that any woman of and I quote reproductive potential should never drink alcohol so there's this you know blanket guideline that women should before they think about anything else about their lives their wants their needs they should always position this you know possible imaginary pregnancy above anything else that they want you know so this idea that women are primarily reproductive that that is what we're for and that is what we should want above anything else it infuses contemporary knowledge too like yeah it's very much still with us yeah 
did anyone in your process of getting diagnosed with lupus suggest you remove your ovaries just out of curiosity <laughs> thankfully <laughs> thankfully nobody ever recommended that I should remove my ovaries. <laughs> <laughs> or nobody ever went mm, your womb is wandering um yeah and, and okay, so there has been some progress yeah, there's been some progress thank you very much and you know interestingly after my second child I've got two children um because I now have this disease and it my consultants believe it's linked to the estrogen uh, shifts between pregnancy and not being pregnant I've been you know very very strongly advised to never have another child mm -hmm. so it's interesting that there's this real paradox you know pregnancy is the cure this sort of blanket social cure but also it can be harmful too so I feel like I've seen it from both sides but it, it, whichever way you look at it there's still this idea of women's reproductive choice and freedom being policed in some way hmm. wow that's really powerful and um you know with all the conversations going on in the U.S. right now about abortion rights and justice um it's a, that's such a cool example, personal example of the, the importance of that, that right to be available, you know, that choice to be available to people with medical conditions. You don't, you know, carrying a baby to term could sometimes be really unhealthy for you. And um, even if you could survive, like survival is, is different than, you Definitely. know, well. <laughs> completely, completely agree. Oh, well, Dr. Cleghorn, thank you so much for your time and for writing this wonderful book. I hope it changes medical practice and makes people a little bit more conscious of the female patients, you know, people with uteruses that are in front of them. <laughs> and, um, and hopefully we can change the world. I think you're changing the world. Oh, thank you so much. Well, let's hope so. And that, well, I hope that it can contribute at least to creating conversations like this one that we're having. And thank you so much, Kelsey, for inviting me on. Of course. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.